Well, welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. My name is Daniel Whitehead. I am the CEO of Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries. And during COVID-19, I'm also the host of our podcast. Uh, During this season, we're doing things a little bit differently. We're talking to friends of ours from around the world, people with vocations that can speak to the intersection of faith and mental health. And we're just hearing how they're doing and what they're up to. Uh, Today, we're joined by a good friend, uh, Chris Cook. Chris is an ordained Anglican priest. Uh, He is a trained psychiatrist with over 25 years experience and very much still involved with the Royal College of Psychiatry. Uh, Chris is also a professor at Durham University and the director of the Centre of Spirituality, Theology and Health. Professor Chris Cook, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be with you. You know, Chris, just before we began, I was saying I was actually in Durham just a few months ago before COVID hit. Like the world has changed since the last time I saw you. How are you doing? It's such a different place, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Changed out of all recognition. Absolutely. Well, we're so glad that you joined us, Chris, from your uh, from your home uh, today, not from your office, obviously. Uh, And we're here today to discuss a book you've written, which I understand has been released as an ebook, and because of COVID, the hard copy will be published later in the year, maybe in That's December. That's correct, yes. Um, do you have a copy you could show us, Chris, of your, of your book? I do, here it is. Christians Hearing Voices, and this is one of very few uh, paper copies that are currently available um, because the printing press has shut down due to the pandemic and they can't produce enough copies for sale. But as, as we've said, it will be available as an ebook from the 18th of June. And then hopefully you'll be able to buy a print copy like this one in December. Very good. So, Chris, what was the inspiration for your book? Well, um, I've been working for the last uh, eight years or so on a big uh, interdisciplinary project at Durham University on voice hearing. And my interest within that has been in spiritual and religious voices, particularly Christian experiences of voices. And at one of our meetings, this would be at least five years ago, um, we had some people who had experiences of voice hearing who came and joined us and we talked with them as, as researchers and staff. And then we split up into small groups. And I found myself sitting on the floor with two colleagues and talking about the fascinating experiences that we'd heard of during this um, series of conversations that we'd had. And um, one of us said, hey, wouldn't it be good to have a collection of stories of this kind? You know, they're so interesting. Surely that would make a really good book. And so I took that thought away. And um, during the course of the next few years, I heard more and more of these stories, particularly from Christian people. And then published three articles in the Church Times uh, a year or two ago, which evoked quite a a vigorous and fascinating correspondence. So I had several dozen people, mainly from the UK, um, sending me emails, telling me about their stories of hearing voices as Christians and what it had meant to them. And so I thought, well, this is the chance, you know, that here's a collection of stories that would make a really interesting book and would Um, give a different sort of um, picture of what voice hearing can be like within the context of faith, because a lot of the research, not all of it, but a lot of the previous research has been on um, secular experiences or spiritual but not religious experiences. And and very little of this kind has been published previously. So um, the book began from there, really. And then 
there was a series of, of ongoing conversations with all of these people about their stories, which eventually came together to make the book that we now have. Wow. I was saying to a friend the other day um, about this book because um, I, you've also written a piece for our blog. Is that right, Chris? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It's a very short summary of the book. Um, obviously, it only gives a taster of, of what's in the book, but, but it gives you an idea of the kinds of things that the book, book is addressing here. Yeah. So I read the copy of that and I was chatting to a friend, um, someone from the UK, and I said, oh, this really interesting book. And she said, oh, so is it about sort of like hearing God's voice or is it about mm. sort of hearing a voice because you have some kind of psychotic episode? And I just went, like, <laughs> like the, for those listening, yes. I shrug my shoulders. So, you know, it's like. It's most um, of those. It's both of those and, and other things as well. Um, so we, we're focusing here on, excuse me, <clears throat> on Christian experiences. And um, some of these people have heard voices which are nothing to do with anything spiritual or religious. So, you know, that, that's a different thing. But I'm focusing primarily on the voices they heard that were spiritually significant to them. That, that's how we gathered these stories. We asked people about their spiritually significant voices. Mm. And for, for the majority of people in the book, that was an experience of hearing God in one way or another. They'd, they'd perhaps word it differently. They'd be more or less cautious about whether they thought it was God, but it, but it was some kind of story of that kind, something positive and good that had been spiritually helpful to them. Uh, a smaller number, a significant minority of stories were about evil voices and um, voices variously described as demonic or, or the devil. And of course, that's, that's usually a distressing experience, a very different kind of thing. But it's those stories, um, rather than the, the more usual secular ones that you hear about. So some of these stories are associated with experience of mental illness. So a, a few of these people, uh, again, a small minority, have been in treatment for mental health issues. And they tell you about that in the book or where I've got permission to do so, I have said something about that. But um, for the vast majority of, of the people in the book, um, there's no diagnosed mental health problem. This, this is a part of their spiritual life. And, and this is the story they've told me. Uh, I've presented it as they've given it to me in their own words. Hmm. So, Chris, a big question, but what are some of the theories uh, that we use to explain the experience of hearing voices? Well, that's that's quite a big scientific question, and the project more widely has uh, spent the last eight years or so trying to address that. So we we know a lot. Um, I mean, it's, it's a half full and half empty kind of answer, really. You know, we're, the more we learn, the more we're aware of what we don't know. But but we have a number of theories that, that are quite important. Um, Sometimes, as we've just said, voices can be associated with mental illness. And so there's the whole scientific research story of, you know, what causes mental illness. And, and in a sense, that's a separate question, one, one which I won't try to address today. But we know now that there's a lot of people who are hearing voices who are not mentally ill. They're not diagnosed. They're getting on with their lives. They're, they're fine. They don't need help from mental health services. And what we know about their experiences um, falls under a, a few theories, really. I mean, one, one of the most influential, probably the most popular amongst psychological researchers has been what they call 
source monitoring. So um, we all we all hear voices in one sense. You know, there's the voice I hear within my head, which I usually identify as my own thoughts, and which I don't normally hear out loud. But maybe sometimes um, that inner process of of um, monitoring that voice goes wrong somehow, and rather than recognizing it as my own thought, maybe I, for some reason, imagine it as coming from outside of me, in, in the world around me. Um, maybe it appears out loud rather than thought-like. And uh, we don't know a lot about what the, the reasons are for, for making those sort of mental mistakes, but there are a lot of reasons for thinking that that's a good theory. Um, and it makes a lot of sense in that um, we know developmentally children begin their mental lives by talking to their parents and their family and those around them. So you might hear a child playing with her toys and um, telling you about what she's doing. And then what she's telling you is no longer a conversation with you. It's, it's a conversation with herself about the train that she's pushing around the train track or something like that. And the theory is that we internalize that voice. We no longer need to speak it out loud. We're, we're able to just listen to ourselves saying it within. So if that's the process by which we develop our ability to hear inner voices, inner thoughts, then maybe it can be reversed. Maybe there's some process by which we start to hear it out loud again, rather than just being purely mental phenomenon. Mm, very interesting. Wow. So, Chris, what, what are some of the ways that accounts of religious voices differ from accounts of non-religious voices? Well, that's an interesting question and one that we're just beginning to explore. So there are a variety of different theories about this. One is the, the continuum hypothesis. That is that all of these experiences are on a continuum. Um, they maybe differ in certain ways. Some of them, for example, are more out loud voices and some of them are more thought-like and many of them we know are somewhere in between the two but they're all essentially variations of the same phenomenon so that's one theory and if you wanted to be um, very reductionistic if you were a hard-nosed materialist and, and atheist in your thinking about these things you could say well hearing god is just one example of that it's all generated within the human mind and brain and actually um, that's all there is to it. So the religious voices are no different than any of the other voices that people hear in schizophrenia or um, in other circumstances. But um, that's a scientifically controversial theory as well as theologically controversial, obviously. Um, and there are many reasons to see differences between these voices. So, for example, Tanya Lerman in the States has done a lot of research on um, voices within Christian communities. And there are certain ways in which those voices seem to be different than the other kinds of voice experiences we're hearing about. So for example, they frequently occur in the context of prayer. Um, Christians are talking to God about things. They're asking God maybe about stuff that they're struggling with. And it's as though God talks back. Tanya's book is called When God Talks Back. Um, so it's like you're having a conversation and um, God isn't always a silent conversation partner. You hear him in response. Now, again, uh, as a Christian, I'm certainly not excluding the possibility that it is God talking to us. 
But if you have a deep sense of absorption in your life of prayer and meditation, if you have an expectation, as do Christians in many churches, that God will reply, then uh, perhaps it's not surprising that actually sometimes God does respond. And there are non-religious examples of a similar kind, which suggests that this sort of process of, of absorption into a particular mental state and intense focus with an expectation that you'll hear a voice, may, maybe that um, fosters or kindles the possibility of, of this kind of experience. Now, um, that's the scientific research. And Tanya Lerman, by the way, doesn't rule out the possibility that God is actually speaking to people through these experiences, neither do I. But God may speak through these natural mechanisms by which we experience our own thoughts and evaluate the world around us. You know, there's no reason in my mind why we shouldn't hear God through these processes. Even if we can understand more about them scientifically, that doesn't exclude the possibility of God speaking to us through them. So maybe in that sense, they're, they're different than other kinds of experiences. They're not the same. Mm, I love that, Chris. I think it's, uh, it's often uh, people who are work in this intersection, let's say, of, of science and faith, um, which is obviously the mental health conversation I think has to be approached from various lenses, but certainly analyzing clinically and theologically what, what a person's experience is means that we come away with this sense in which, yeah, exactly as you said, if, if there is a biological occurrence, but if that is the way that God works, then there's no threat in that. And for many of us, I grew up in a tradition where implicitly that would have been seen as a like a threat, right? Oh, well, then it's not valid if it's done yeah. through a kind of natural means or a scientific. Yes, right. yes, yes. And of course, it's a great point. Why? Why is it not valid? Yeah. Why isn't that the way God speak or can speak to us and, and, and often does? And this is part of a wider question. You know, um, if you're reading the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament, you know, the waters part and the children of Israel walk across the, the Red Sea. Um, well, people have speculated that there was a tsunami, you know, an unusual climatic event that caused this um, movement of the waters. I, I think that's still a miracle of a kind. You know, the, the timing of the thing is, is still miraculous, according to the narrative of the story. Um, but other Christians would say, oh, no, 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 no. This, this was God directly intervening and moving the waters to one side. You know, it wasn't a natural event. Well, I don't know that it matters too much to me. The fact is that they were saved from their predicament and the outcome was understood by them as being one of divine intervention. And I think the same applies here, really. Mm. Um, our better understanding of the science might give us more cause for wonder at the significance of what's happening, but it, it doesn't exclude the possibility of God being involved in some way. Yeah, very good. I, I totally agree, as if you need my affirmation, Chris. <laughs> no, I think that's great. Um, okay, it says here, if God speaks to us in an inner thought-like voice, what sort of discernment, if any, should be exercised? Well, I think discernment should always be exercised. Um, St. John of the Cross, for example, was more sceptical about the validity of out loud voices and, and visible visions than he was about the more thought-like ones. And following after Augustine, uh, the more interior it was, the more likely he thought it was to be from God. But he was always cautious about placing too much weight on these things. And Christians for hundreds of years, thousands of years, really, have um, 
thought that there is a need to test these experiences and, and not just to assume naively that it, it's God. How we do that is, is, of course, a much more complex affair. And it has to be said that different Christian traditions have different approaches. Some of them are more like John of the Cross, very cautious, would exclude most things as being God and would rarely, if ever, want to place too much weight on them. Others, we might say, are at the end of the spectrum where they're more accepting and expecting of, of these experiences, more likely to think it's God. But almost always there are some criteria and um, it's a question of exactly what the criteria are and how they're applied. So coming from somewhere in the middle of all of this and being a fascinated observer of both ends of the spectrum, I guess I'd, I'd encourage people, um, first of all, to talk and pray with others about it, not just to jump to conclusions. Um, secondly, to be patient. These things take time. Maybe I won't know today or tomorrow. Maybe I won't really know whether this was God for another five or 10 years. But, but to keep open possibilities and to explore uh, what may or may not be going on um, with, with an open mind. And I suppose, thirdly, by, by whatever means within your tradition is, is most helpful to be constructively critical of the experience. You know, why, why might this not be God? If it is God, God's not going to mind you asking the question. You know, he doesn't want you to be deceived either. So um, is it possible to ask the question, why might this not be God? And if not, why not? Um, and then to, to spend time reflecting on that. I mean, spiritual direction, for example, if, if you're from in a tradition that you know, has this kind of thing, or maybe you call it spiritual mentoring or soul friendship or something else, having a spiritual director with whom you can talk about these things is, is a really good idea. And uh, see what they think about it and, and talk it through with them. Hmm, very good. Uh, so, Chris, I, having read your blog post for us, I think this question kind of stems from that. Um, so what's the difference between an evil voice and a demonic voice? Or, or is there a difference? Well, that's a good question. Um, and I have to say, first of all, that, that the minority of voices that people have told me about have been in this category. But, but when it does occur, particularly for Christians and also for others, um, it tends to be a very distressing experience. It's not a nice thing to hear evil voices. So the voice might just say, you're a nasty person. You don't deserve to live. You know, um, why are you wasting space on God's earth? You know, you, you ought to kill yourself or something like that. And maybe in those circumstances, some people do identify it as demonic and some people don't. Maybe it's more in the mind of the person hearing the voice than anything else. I mean, there's one sense in which I'd say, well, it, that is a demonic voice. You know, it's, it's evil. <laughs> it's, it's nasty. It, it's clearly not from God. It's from another place. And let's call that demonic. But other voices identify themselves very explicitly as demonic. Um, incidentally, the, the only similar example to this in the New Testament, of course, is Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus hears the voice of the devil. So I sometimes say to people who are often very distressed in these circumstances, well, you're in good company. You know, Jesus heard the voice of the devil. So that doesn't make you a bad person. Um, it does raise the question of how you evaluate the experience and how you respond to what the voice says. That's altogether 
a much more important thing for a Christian to think about. But it doesn't mean that there's necessarily anything wrong with you that you hear a voice like that. But it's not a nice experience. And, and if the voice identifies itself as demonic, um, I would suggest that in 99 cases out of 100, it really is advisable to get uh, advice from a mental health professional. And I, I don't say that because I think Jesus was mentally ill, quite the opposite. But but very often in my experience, such voices have been associated with mental disorders of various kinds. And um, experiences of Christians who've been subjected to exorcism or deliverance ministry, having had those kinds of voices, have often been very, well, not just unproductive, but the the experience of the ministry has added to the distress caused by the voice. Mm. And so um, I would always recommend that mental health professionals and clergy or spiritual advisors work together in helping people to think about how best to respond to those kinds of experiences. Mm. It strikes me, Chris, in, in line with the conversation thus far, that um, like when we encourage in the scriptures to discern the spirits, or very often that's interpreted in... And I'm from a tradition that would do that um, in quite an abstract way. Like, yeah, um, yeah. And it's interesting, again, if we're just broadening ourselves to, um, let's say, science, uh, you know, this is one of the ways God works. And this is, a you could say, a primary way God works. Yes. Um, yeah. Discernment yeah. of spirits would involve a mental health professional. I mean, why Why wouldn't they? That That is to why discern wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's going well, you on. You probably know there have been, um, widely publicised cases in England and elsewhere, where um, we're going back decades now. But um, you know, people have been subjected to exorcism or similar ministry, and there have been terrible outcomes. People have died. Mm. Um, so, the the standard teaching within the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church, and I think within many of the other mainstream denominations, is that mental health professionals should be a part of the discernment process. Um, and, and I would take that as, as the starting point, really. Um, and some of the stories within the book, you know, if, if you get the book on the 18th when it's available and you read them, will we'll give you more of a picture of why that should be. Um, one lady who, whom I've called Perpetua within the book, it's not her real name, um, she explains how unhelpful some of the things that Christians tried to do for her were. And um, and there are other similar stories which, which reinforce the value that Christians have found from receiving um, psychiatric treatment for, for these kinds of voices and how much help that has been. What one story I remember when I was a junior psychiatrist many years ago, not in the book, um, was of uh, a young Christian who was seeing and hearing devils that were tormenting him and had a series of unproductive encounters with Christians trying to help him and then rapidly got better when he received treatment from the local um, psychiatric day hospital. So, you know, st stories like that impress themselves upon your clinical and pastor experience, really, and, and colour the way in which you try to help people ever after, because you, you don't want people to experience needless distress um, mm. and, you know, to, to go through the same kind of suffering that you've seen others undergo. Yeah, it's my. I think of my old New Testament professor, uh, Rick Watts, who um, is a yeah, he's Pentecostal by tradition. But I remember him saying in one of his lectures, "It's amazing how many demons." 
can get cast out with a good meal and a proper night's sleep. <laughs> yes, yes. And actually, good attention to physical and mental health is, is really fundamental. You know, we need to have a good diet. We need to sleep well. We need to be rested. Um, actually, a lot of that makes things look a lot different the morning after. So that's, that's very good advice. Yeah. Okay. So, Chris, how can the church helpfully and healthily validate the religious experiences of voices of individuals with mental illness? Well, as we've just said, I think there's a, a multi-professional approach is important here. So, so that's the sort of starting point for all of this. Um, I think for clergy, for, for pastors and church leaders, um, being aware of the range of possibilities and, and the, the need for professional help is, is important because very often these folks don't present to mental health services. They, they see it as a spiritual problem. They go first to their pastor. And if he or she isn't aware of the range of possibilities, then the conversation gets narrowed down prematurely and, and maybe the wrong help is given for a long time during which things can get worse. We know that for some of these people, um, early uh, treatment, for example, with, with psychiatric medication uh, will improve the long-term outcome. So we, we don't want to delay getting the right help. And if the, uh, the clergy and, and um, church leaders and others you know, are aware of that, then, then that's, that's a good start. Mm. Very good. And so under what circumstances should a person who's hearing voices seek help? Well, there are so many different experiences, as you'll see from the book. Um, it's difficult to give answers which are not overgeneralizations. But, but I think if I were to overgeneralize, um, if it's distressing for you or for others, then, then get help. And that might be because of the kind of thing we talked about earlier. The voices are evil. They say nasty things. That, that's clearly an indication that you ought to um, seek help from mental health professionals. Um, it may be rather different than that. It may be that for the individual hearing the voice, this seems like a really good experience. They're very positive about it, but actually other people are all saying, you know, we've heard enough about this. Um, we don't believe you. It's not God. You know, God wouldn't say things like that. Um, please, would you stop going on about it? So actually it's causing friction in the home or family or maybe within the church community and others are saying, look, you know, we, we don't think this is God, you know. Um, and, and that's a sign that, that something's amiss. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily that it's mental illness. It might be other things. But, but that certainly is a reason for getting help. And um, this works both ways, of course. It may be that uh, within a church context, it's the mental health professional that needs to be brought in. It may be that within the mental health context, it's the chaplain or pastor or priest that needs to be brought in and um and very often you know in that context um people feel distressed because they're not being listened to spiritually and actually it's the spiritual component to the to the response that's missing so so it works both ways mm. in your research chris i know that you you've had people respond from i mean across the world in many ways lots of different places um, what kinds of requests do you get? Because I guess in some ways in, in undertaking this research, you are a bit of an expert on, on hearing voices 
and and what that means for Christians. What kind of responses have you had from people around the world, and how? Yeah, who's been reaching out to you, and, and yeah, and what what have they? What help have people asked for from you? Well, um, I had a lot of responses um, following the Church Times articles that I mentioned to you earlier, which led to the book, and so many of those stories are in the book. But I, over the last um, eight years or so, I've had emails from all sorts of other people as well. Um, and these take a variety of different forms. Again, you know, I'm, I'm not wishing to overgeneralize, but um, a, a classic would be, you know, I'm, I'm hearing this voice. No one understands me. They think I'm mentally ill. You know, Please, will you tell the psychiatrist it's God? Well, from the other side of the world, and only having had an email conversation with someone, it's difficult for me to say, yes, this is God, or indeed, no, it's not God, um, which raised the question of what's going wrong with communication locally, that the person doesn't feel understood, and, and that may take a variety of different forms. But it usually comes back to the things we've discussed earlier. I encourage people to talk to their pastor about it. I encourage them to seek help from mental health professionals. I encourage them to think about spiritual direction. I ask them what other people in their church think about this kind of voice. Mm. And usually you can learn a lot from the brief answers, even in an email that, that you receive to those kinds of questions. You know, people say, for example, um, well, everyone else thinks it's strange. You know, e even my Christian friends don't believe this, which leaves me wondering why they don't believe mm. it. Um, equally, I'm, I'm very sorry to say that there are still many mental health services that don't understand the importance of integrating the spiritual component into their assessment and treatment. And you get people who say, well, the psychiatrist isn't a Christian. You know, he, he dismisses anything like this. He says it's all part of the illness. And, and I feel very sympathetic to them because the voice may or may not be part of the illness, but they haven't been understood. Their faith as the the basic context, the foundation of, of you know, everything they understand about their experience hasn't been taken into account. And really, it should be the, the starting point these days that, that both perspectives are taken into account. So um, those exchanges usually by email have been fascinating, but sometimes very frustrating because I can't sort it all out by email. I have to hope that in God's providence, others locally will help them and, and that it will all find a happy outcome. And sometimes I've heard that it does. Other times I lose touch with people and I don't know what happens to them. Mm. And there's a really interesting um, synergy in the negative sense, it seems, between being isolated and maybe being misunderstood or maybe, or you know, it seems to me what you're saying to people is connect yourself, be known, go to the people who know yeah. you and listen to you know in sense find yourself relationally among others because yeah. you know yeah. you're a relational being so um yes. what yes. do the people around you think but if i can yeah. imagine people who are isolated just sending an email off to someone in another country saying fix this for me it's kind of betrays that relational sense of self yes. we are people who are to be known yes. it's an expression of their frustration that um, they've not been heard really and as you say, we are relational creatures. We're, we're in relationship with God. We're in relationship with people around us. But we're in an inner relationship with ourselves. You know, our inner thoughts are a kind of a dialogue. Um, if you catch me in the kitchen one evening, you know, burning the omelette on the pan, you know, I might say, oh, you stupid boy, <laughs> what are you doing? And I get cross 
talking to myself as though I were another person. So this this being understood within ourselves and by others and by God is is fundamental. And, and if and if we don't have that sense of being listened to, then um, you know th things get worse. Really, it makes it more difficult. Mm. And of course, that, that's true in relationship to the voice. So um, some people hearing voices, the voices are distressing, so they don't want to listen to them. But, but if the voice doesn't get a hearing, it can get worse. And so for some people, giving a space each day, maybe just half an hour in the evening, when they listen to the voice, can make it more bearable during the rest of the day. And that can be the beginning to things getting better. There's, there's one story of that kind um, within the book, which, which is quite interesting. Well, it's unique in various ways. But but it's part of the wider principle that we need to listen well to ourselves and to others. Mm. Well, Chris, thank you so much. I just, you know, I, your challenging of the tendency in us to over um, simplify or to be reductionistic is just so timely and helpful. And, uh, you know, I'm just so grateful for your work, not only your work uh, as an academic, but uh, clinically and also with the Church of England. I know you have a very key role there in helping the Church of England navigate this and also your role in helping Sanctuary. You've been a great help to us in reviewing certain work and uh, writing for us. And I know you're going to be helping us with some other projects in the future. So a uh, big, big thank you to you for all of those things. My, my pleasure. It's been great working with you and I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Great. And Chris, just remind us one more time, um, uh, the book. When does the book uh, come out in hard copy? So the book comes out as an e-book on the 18th of June. And as a hard copy, we're currently planning December. Of course, that all depends upon the pandemic and when, you know, people will be able to go back to work. But um, but we're optimistic that it will be later this year. Very good. So uh, when the book comes, when the book is out on an ebook soon, but when it comes out, Christians Hearing Voices by Chris Cook, uh, you should buy it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks thank for joining you. us, everyone. And Chris, thank you for joining us. We're very grateful to have had you with us. A pleasure. God bless. Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries exists to equip the church to be a sanctuary for all people at all stages of their mental wellness journeys. May this podcast encourage you to create safe space for your own story and the stories of others, as well as create change in communities that stigmatize those suffering with mental health challenges. The Sanctuary Course is a small group resource designed to help initiate and guide conversations about mental health and faith. It is a starting point, creating a base of shared knowledge from which churches can explore the next steps. Perhaps most importantly, through the simple act of talking openly about mental health, the course helps churches begin to create safe spaces for people to share their mental health stories and receive support in community. Each theme in the course is explored from a psychological, social, and theological perspective, and each session is accompanied by a compelling film focused on an individual story, a person of faith who has journeyed through mental health challenges. Interested in exploring the Sanctuary Course for use in your community? Learn more at sanctuarycourse.com. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives 4.0 license. Don't change it or sell it, but please share it all you like.